Welcome to DanceCast, the podcast in which I interview people who create inclusive dance all around the world. My name is Silva Laukkanen and I am your host. Welcome to DanceCast episode 58 and happy new year 2022. I hope this year finds you with curiosity and joy. I had the privilege to work with Magda on the NDO task force for dance and disability for almost two years. And it has been lovely to learn more about her work and herself. And I recorded an episode with her about six months ago. But I feel like everything in this episode is so timeless. And it's lovely to hear more about Magda's story. Magda Katsmarska is a dancer, researcher and creative aging teaching artist based in New York City. Magda received her MFA in dance performance and choreography and her BS in biochemistry and molecular biophysics from the University of Arizona. Agda has dedicated her career to utilizing the vehicle of dance and movement to amplify and support creative community. Her multidisciplinary work leverages a dual background in neuropharmacology and dance to build bridges between seemingly disparate sectors. Through all her work, she seeks to foster safe, creative and inclusive spaces for discovery, agency and meaning. She believes all of us possesses the ability to harness our creative expression to support building meaningful communities around us. Devoted to building evidence base while expanding public and professional education in best practices in creative agent practice globally, Magda balances her work in intergenerational community-based teaching with engagement in advocacy in several sectors. As an Atlantic Fellow for Equity in Brain Health at the Global Brain Health Institute, Magda builds collaborations to design and expand access to creative aging programs that support brain health across the lifespan. I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, Magda, welcome to DanceCast. Thank you for having me, Silva. Oh my gosh, I didn't even I don't even know where to start with you. It's, there are so many questions that I want to know. It's funny because Magda and I have been working over a year together in this um, NDO, the National Dance Education Organization's Dance and Disability Task Force. But we have always worked like, you, you know, when you get together with people, you don't actually get to know them so well. What happened before you started working with them? So this is all about that. Well, I hope it doesn't disappoint. Oh, it won't. <laughs> so just, you know, my first question is always like, how did you uh, end up dancing? How did that became your lifelong journey? Mm. Oh, you know, that's a good question. And my path, I think, is a little, um, well, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? So everything... You know, the stories we tell ourselves make a lot more sense if we look at them backwards. But <laughs> in the moment, um, it, it felt kind of like a roundabout way. 
Um, I think I have to begin just a little bit even further. So I'm originally from Poland. I was born in in um, Bydgoszcz, Poland, and um, lived there until I was eight with my grandmother. This was still under communism, so um, um, I wasn't really exposed to dance at that point, although I did definitely <laughs> do a lot of dancing in the living room. <laughs> I can tell you that. And um, I came to the United States when I was eight. Um, and my parents were scientists or they were um, graduate students. So even though at eight years old, I declared that I wanted to be a dancer, it really wasn't possible. Um, and I didn't really get a chance to begin to dance until I was 13. And it actually started with community dance, with folk dance. Um, I began to dance with Polish folk dancing. That was a big part of my um, connection to my community. Um, a big um, part of that was uh, this um, service to the community um, of what it means, not only for the Polish community, but also for the community at large. Um, that was, I think, when I also had my first exposure to working um, or bringing the arts to older adults. Although in, in that, at that point, it was really more the kind of traditional way that we used to think about these things, you know, where you're going to see a performance. So we'd go and we'd perform for, for older adults in, in, in community centers. But that was my exposure at 13, so pretty late. Um, and then I, I, I actually came to ballet much later, even, <laughs> which is kind of crazy if you think about it. Um, I think you think about this, you hear about this more with, with men than with women identified folks. But I started ballet at 18, which is pretty late. I was on point why? by like, why? <laughs> why? Well, I love ballet. I, I think I always loved it. And I wanted to. I was attracted to the discipline of it. I was attracted to mm. the difficulty of it. And for me, it was a really beautiful place to escape. I think I had a lot of challenges growing up and it was a place that provided stability and, and fantasy and rigor, but also beauty and I needed that. And I think because I came into dance so late, um, and because I had to work really hard at it, I've always had a very strong affinity for bringing and offering support to, to dance, kind of dismantling some of the stories that we tell ourselves that dance is not available to us um, mm -hmm. as we get older or depending on when we begin, depending on what our background might be or what our bodies are like or what our minds may be like or how we perceive them that has really shaped my, um, just that, that fundamental principle that dance is for everyone if you wish it to be. Yeah. Um, and even if you don't know, having an opportunity to discover that and then deciding for yourself at that point if it is for you. So that's yeah. kind of <laughs> a, little, uh, a, little, a little backstory. It goes so, on, but that's the, that, those would be the starts. <laughs> well, and we will hear about the the on the second part as well. But I have a couple of questions. Where did mm. you land after you came from uh, Poland? Where Where did you move to? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, so my parents, my mom and my stepfather, were living in a little town called Socorro, New Mexico, 
which if you're familiar with New Mexico, I think most people know Santa Fe and Albuquerque and Albuquerque is kind of a little bit further north, kind of squat in the center, maybe a little bit further north of center. And uh, Socorro is about an hour, hour, I think 70 miles south of Albuquerque. It's a tiny town. Um, I think really, um, what the, what's, what it's known for is that it, it houses the New Mexico Institute for Mining and Technology, if I remember correctly, but that's where my parents went to school. They were geologists. Oh, okay. I see. I see. Yeah. So that's where I went. And then we went to Arizona when I was 11. Okay. And I, I lived see. in Arizona and Tucson, Arizona, <laughs> Tucson, Arizona and the Sonoran desert, um, um, from 11 until, um, gosh, about five years ago when I moved to New York City. Yeah. So did you go to college? Did you end up studying dancing in college or did you do something yeah. else? What happened then? Yeah, yeah, when yeah. You yeah, introduced so, ballet. What happened then? <laughs> I know. So I, I well, obviously I, I wanted to do the arts. I was always really interested in people. I was interested in people. I was interested in what makes people tick. So the humanities, the arts, culture, um, and biology were my interests. And my, just the way it was in my house, you know, and if, you're, if you know other immigrants, I think this tends to be the case. You had to pick something practical. And uh, I, I was really encouraged to do something like engineering, but that physics, unfortunately, was not my forte. So... <laughs> Um, I, but I was fascinated with the human body. So I went to school um, to study biochemistry and molecular biophysics. And at the same time was continuing to dance. So I, I don't even know how I managed it when I think back because I was still um, actively performing with the folk dance company that I had first studied with and um, dancing and performing in, 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 in two different uh, ballet program, uh, ballet program schools and um, starting to teach already. So I don't know how I managed that, but. Um, you, you went to U of A? I went to the U of A, University of Arizona. And that's for my undergraduate. I also got my freshman year, I got a, a fellowship to, um, <laughs> called the Undergraduate Biology Research Program Fellowship, which meant that I um, essentially was being supported as this future researcher, which is really funny because I kind of, I, I did, I, I took this whole route of work and research and, and biomedical or biological research. I studied biochemistry and then um, I worked in neurology and then neuropharmacology. So like really hardcore research. And mm-hmm. I was doing really well and I succeeded pretty, I was pretty successful. I was, um, uh, had poster presentations. I had this fellowship. I um, had like seven publications by the time I was in my twenties. And, but I just, I couldn't push the button for the PhD. And I think really, what finally clicked for me is that um, I, I spent a year working in a, in a research lab that studied Parkinson's disease. And then Parkinson's disease is a, is a, it's a I, I guess it could be classified as a form of dementia, but really um, I think most important about it is that it does affect 
the parts of our brain that support movement. And so what happens is that people who have Parkinson's disease, one of the symptoms of that is that it affects their ability to control movement. And I was working in a research lab of an individual who's um, Dr. Scott Sherman, actually his name, I still remember, um, was an MD, PhD, which means that he had a medical practice as well as a research lab. And I remember watching, that was my first introduction to seeing somebody who has Parkinson's um, before um, a, a surgery that they do to help balance out the, the, the two parts of the brain that support and that fire dopamine, which helps, um, which helps with some of the motor control. And I saw the difference before and after. And I thought, you know, maybe some people would be inspired to go into medicine. And I thought, hmm, I, I, I felt this profound empathy for this individual who, whose body is, is, is responding in this different way. And I thought, well, dance seems like a perfect thing for this, you know? And, and so I started doing research and I discovered that um, there's this program called Dance for PD, which uh, was founded in Mark Morris Dance Group in, in Brooklyn, New York. And I applied for their program. Um, I was super excited and was accepted and did their training and then came back to Tucson and developed a program with my colleague, Corinne Koo. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, it's called Dancing with Parkinson's. She and I um, had a, a, a company called Evolve Dance West. It was a company that she had started in New York and she wanted to continue it in Arizona. And we used that as a platform, both to do performance work, but also to start doing this community-based practice. So that was really my introduction to working with older adults in the community. And I think that really, you know, the distinction between doing this, I also at that time had developed an, a, a really successful adult ballet program um, for um, really anybody who wanted to start ba um, learning ballet. And I had people in this space from all ages, a very intergenerational group, um, people from, you know, in their 80s and in their teens. Um, I had, it was a very open space. It was a, a queer space. It was just a wonderful place where people could enter in and discover how their bodies wanted to move in the, within the form of ballet. And uh, so I had this, and then I had the research lab as my two kind of spaces of comparison. And I, I felt my body in those two spaces and I realized I really wanna do the dance thing. <laughs> this is what really ticks for me. You know, I, I figured, you know, if at this point I don't have a PhD, I think maybe it's time to do something else. And so I did what many, what I guess might seem like a really crazy thing and it just completely, did a 180. I left my research lab position. Um, I had an su incredibly supportive boss. I went to him shaking and quaking to tell him that I want to do this thing. I want to go back to school and do dance. And he, instead of what I thought he was going to say, which is, how could you possibly consider this? Instead, what he said is how, how that there are so few people who can say that they really found their calling, something that really drives them, something that they're passionate about. And you have this thing. And he said, I'm super happy for you. I'm so supportive to you. Anything I can do to help you on your journey. Yeah. I mean, that was such a beautiful green light. 
and I really attribute so much to 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 my past because of him. I mean, I shouldn't say that I needed acknowledgement or validation or or you know a go ahead green light, but I think it really helped. And so with that, I I went off and and went to uh, went to get my master's of fine arts in dance performance and choreography at the University of Arizona School of Dance. Um, and at that point, I think I was 28 or 29. So it was a really big shift, but I really think that that, um, that was the beginning of the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Quite incredible. Also like, you know, I, I just seeing your connection to people who I know, like I knew that you knew Kirin and shout out, there's an episode with Kirin Ku as well, if you want to go and listen to that. Um, but I didn't realize that you guys were so like working together so tightly for quite yeah. a long time. Is that yeah. how you got involved in the Mettler based uh, dance yes. as well? Yes. Um, yeah, so Corinne, again, a big shout out to Corinne. I I met Corinne because she came to my one of my ballet classes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and we became friends. Um, and she invited me to, to, to join, you know, what was, the, you know, the Evolve Dance Fest. And um, we've been friends and colleagues ever since. She's an incredible human. Um, and she was she was telling me about Mettler based and you know I was at the time I was in the middle of gra uh, graduate school and dance and I was spending all of my time that I wasn't in class coming to New York I knew I wanted to move to New York and yeah. at the time I was still really thinking of joining a kind of more traditional route of even though I was a late starter I wanted to be in the company and but I was coming to New York and, and um, introduced to the kind of postmodern dance scene. I was doing the movement research melt programs, connecting with you know, doing somatics programs and choreography work and, and really expanding my circle of understanding of what dance can be like. And uh, you know, seeing these performers who were uh, and educators who were, had been doing dance for their whole life and were now in their 50s and 60s and, and later. And I thought, my gosh, I want to be in that place, right? But so uh, Corinne was telling me about this Mettler-based program. And I said, yes, I will do it, but not right now. I don't have time. I don't have time. And then my um, second year, uh, my third semester, the, right like two weeks before I was supposed to go on all of these, I had these grants and these to go to New York, I ruptured my Achilles tendon while performing on stage. So that was a huge, huge deal. Um, and I, I, I didn't know if I was gonna be able to walk again, let alone dance. And I thought, my goodness, you know, I guess the universe is really testing my resolve to do this work. <laughs> and, but the, the interesting thing is, is that that experience really, I feel, supported a, a different level of understanding and appreciation, not only for my own resolve and determination to do this work, um, but also in an understanding and appreciation for what it what it's like to relearn your body, mm -hmm. to be in, to inhabit your body in a different way. Um, there's a there's a concept in Mettler based dance that's called creative limitation, and I feel like that was for me an incredible um, 
creative limitation. I, I had I was on non weight bearing in a cast and then in a boot for God six months more. It wasn't the the thing happened in December. I didn't my foot didn't touch the ground again until May. So it was a long, and then I had to relearn how to walk and then dance. And, and right, this was right before graduating from graduate school when I'm about to, I was full gung ho moving to New York. And I did, I moved to New York having barely started to walk. And I was like, I'm still going to do this thing. <laughs> but, but because of that, I, um, I decided right after graduating that I wanted to stay in Arizona. I had, I still had the health insurance from being a student. I was still doing my athletic training and the, of my physical therapy. And I wanted to stick with my trainer so I could really finish my recovery. And so um, I said, okay, well, let's try this Mettler based thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, I did the, um, so Mettler based work is founded by, on, um, is, was really founded by this woman named Barbara Mettler, who was a um, contemporary of Martha Graham um, in, in the early 30s or 40, 30s, I guess she went to Germany and studied with Mary Wigman, who was who had studied with um, um, Laban, Rudolf Laban. So she um, really uh, was kind of a contemporary, was in that circle of like new ways of thinking about dance as you know, breaking down dance into these elemental forms and thinking about dance in the community and thinking about dance outside of the traditional space before postmodern dance happened, which was like in the 60s and 70s, right? She came back and, and continued to do this work, which is similar to Rudolf Laban's same principle of thinking about force, time, and space, these, these elemental principles, but um, really uh, breaking it down into this idea of how to support this in a group dance practice, really thinking about the individual, the individual body, individual component body parts, and then the individual human, and how the individual can understand and explore this in their body, and then expand their kinesphere, expand their understanding of that with one other body, with two other bodies, and kind of always be in this flux of self and other, self and group, and thinking about how to engage and then support the group. So the, the foundation, I think, of that work, what really draws to me is this learning this flexibility of how to be in a group body, how to take the practice of being in a supportive role or a witnessing role where you're um, really uh, empowering um, and championing another person's ex exploration and expression, and then uh, relaxing into being supported by others so that you can explore your own expression. And that flexing that muscle, which I don't think many practices allow us to experience. So Corinne and and my 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 mentors in that Mettler based practice, Marianne Bram and and Griff Goering, really opened my eyes to that and. I, that has been a part, a pivotal part of my practice since then. You know, I've, I've had other wonderful mentors who've shaped the work that I do, but I find that I come back to that. And I, mm -hmm. especially now that I'm, I'm working with older adults um, who, who are living with dementia or are living with this experience of their minds and bodies, I'm finding that that practice really serves me because it's, it's really, for the, for the first time and I have all the practices I've had, it's, it's, 
challengingly and inviting to me to be in, in an actual group body dance, in an actual group dance with these individuals in real time, you know, um, in, in, in creative dance setting. So. Wow, that's super fascinating, Magda. I am just, <laughs> I'm speechless. I'm wordless. I don't have any words. Is wordless even an expression? <laughs> it is now. Of course, it is now. We can make it. <laughs> we can make it. I mean, Mettler based dance allows us to make up new words, so why not? Why not? Why not? <laughs> uh, wow, that is incredible. So when you arrived in New York, you were still thinking of going more of the traditional route of uh, uh, route of being in a in a traditional dance company. Why do we use the word? Why do I use the word tradition? I know, right? Why do Isn't we that use that weird? Word? Because it is it kind of has nothing to do with tradition. Like when I think about your folk dancing, like that is tradition. that's a tradition. Right? That's a tradition. This isn't. Um, so let's try again. So when you arrived to New York, you were still thinking of going to work for a contem possibly contemporary dance company as a dancer. But something then happened again, because now you are fully emerged in the aging work, dance and yeah. aging. Yeah. So I, I think I, I did, and, and I have actually had a wonderful opportunity to kind of expand my practice. I think what shifted, I mean, obviously the injury, uh, my injury mm -hmm. really shifted things. I realized that, um, well, uh, there's fear, I think that happens that sets in after you have an injury, but then there's also the appreciation and the cost, both time and the actual financial cost that went into rehabilitating my body. And I realized actually that I didn't, that my body was really valuable. I didn't particularly want to put it in the hands of somebody else <laughs> necessarily who I wasn't necessarily sure that they would respect it. And I, and, and, and that's, that's not to say that um, dance companies don't respect the bodies of dancers, but I do think that, I think that there's a shift that we're shifting in this idea that, that mm. dancers' bodies are disposable. I think there's a lot of, great change that's been happening I think even in my lifetime of the, the recognition that dancers bodies are athletes bodies and that they deserve respect and that we want to they're not disposable but um, I think I realized that I if I have this opportunity to relearn my body I would much rather relearn it in a way where I have agency over what happens with it so I really shifted a lot more to developing my own work or working in collaboration with other yeah. artists um and I had some wonderful projects that I had a chance to do but we can talk about them another time <laughs> um but uh I what what happened for me I think really was that I became even more interested in, in expanding this work for others and I mm -hmm. you know in in Arizona I had this opportunity to start working with people who are living with Parkinson's. And I, I think what happened for me in, in that in that space is I thought, well, why just people with Parkinson's? <laughs> you know, there's so many other adults um, in, in, with different ages and, and different bodies and, and different backgrounds who could benefit from this work. And so I realized I wanted to expand. Even in Arizona, I had already started working with Alzheimer's Association and, and um, with an organization that worked with refugees that was an intergenerational group. So I 
was already starting to dabble, but I thought, gosh, I really would love to have an experience to expand my repertoire in this. Um, that, so when I came to New York, that was when I was first really introduced to this field of creative aging through um, the company Dances for a Variable Population that was, was started by Naomi Goldberg Haas. So that was, you know, a really happens, a really interesting little opportunity because I was working in New York. I uh, was working at the Art Students League. I was modeling and I was in this class and it was like all these different costumes. And I met this, this gentleman and I was talking with him on the break. And I said, you know, I moved to New York and I, I, I did this work teaching older adults. And I realized I really want to do more work. But I'm, I'm struggling where to start. You know, New York is so big. And he said, you need to meet Naomi. <laughs> so he, he introduced me to her and, and she was like, okay, come to class. So I came to class and, and this was a class in, in Harlem and in West Harlem. And I, I was in this circle, I was watching her and I am in this community with all of these different older adults. And I thought, this is, this is my place. I need to do this. And I told her, I ran into her after class. I was like, I'll do anything. I'll clean your floors. I just, I need to be in this space. <laughs> and so like a month or two later, I was, I worked, I, I joined the company. I started teaching. I taught all over the city with hundreds of older adults. I, and I think more importantly, I got to work with Naomi and um, she really inspired uh, the, the, the kind of the last kind of missing piece for me. Um, I mean, she's been doing this work even before she, she came to, to, to New York City, she, in, in LA, she had, she had, uh, she was working in this space and um, I learned from her how to, how to connect with the community, how to keep relationships going, how to, how to really listen to the people who are in your space and how to bring in people who to help work with you who aren't who who expand your limitations right like we are only able to 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 learn from our experience to teach from our experience to help facilitate our own knowledge and so she really is is wonderful in, in bringing in people who bring in different voices and um yeah, and, and I, I really, I was really excited and, and had the opportunity to, to help her vision because I, I, I have this background in research. I I'm, I'm, I'm really believe in the, the, this academic, both academic and also public forum that we really need to have a discourse around creative aging, around this practice. Really, in order to help transform narratives, we have to change the stories. And how do we engage in stories? We have to engage with people. So really, over the, the course of three or so years that we worked together, I think we presented at like 11 or so different talks, you know, in academic spaces and public spaces with, you know, with um, the Manhattan Borough President um, at Fordham. Um, at the Columbia Teachers College, at NDO, National Dance Education Organization. And that really for me cemented this desire to see this practice grow. I, I want to see her work grow, but I also want the whole, I want more. I want the whole world to have access to this. I think there's a transformative, creative aging is really kind of revolutionary. 
it, 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 it was really founded around the idea of aging, right? So the way that we have traditionally quote unquote thought about aging, <laughs> that this idea that, you know, we turn 65 and suddenly like we turn into a pumpkin or something, I don't know. Um, but this idea that, you know, if you're, that, that the golden years of life are really a time of rich exploration, of vibrancy, of, of a, a wealth of experience that, 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 that can be translated into creative expression. And that it's not just, you know, if you remember, I was talking about my first exposure to working with older adults as a performance, right? It's not about just performances and, and, and being audience members, but really being for older adults to be participatory in this, in, in their own exploration. So, so uh, it's really thinking about being a facilitator as an educator, being a facilitator of the creative exploration and practice for others. Um, and really supporting that new development of community, of discovering this new element of yourself, discovering this new, this new element of creative discovery in, in your friends and seeing them in new ways and then making new friends, right? Expanding social networks all around joy. Now, I think where I'm arriving now after, after doing this for several years, <clears throat> I think it's been like 15 years now that I've been working in this space. I'm thinking even more. I'm really inspired by the, the ageism activist Ashton Applewhite, who says that you know, aging is not a disease. It's not, there's nothing wrong with aging. It's aging is a natural process. And in fact, it happens across our entire life. So in that, <laughs> in that all mind, of us. and to all of us, right? <laughs> if you're born, you are aging, right? And I, I really take that idea that she has and, and bring it to creative aging, right? Creative aging isn't just for 65 plus. Creative aging is a life course. Uh -huh. And, I, and I, I think that's really where I see the next phase of my work, right? I'm, I'm doing, I'm working right now. Um, I'm an Atlantic fellow for equity and brain health. And that's really brought me into this global forum, <clears throat> to this interdisciplinary sphere where the focus is on brain health, but really brain health is, is health, right? Our brains support all <laughs> of the rest of our body. So I really see this as an opportunity to, to think about health in a different way, but also mostly I'm excited about this idea of global, right? So we're thinking about expanding our communities from, from our small spaces, thinking globally, but also thinking about aging as a life course and thinking about how creativity can fit in and support our individual health and our social health across the life course. So that's, I see where my next chapter is. Well, I can say one thing, Magda, that I think your professor or your um, research uh, person who you went <laughs> to tell the news was quite right in a way, in, in, in that sense that he was saying that if you have found your passion and I can like just the way you talk about your work, like it's just so exciting and inspiring to hear you talk and be so like thinking it from all these different perspectives and enriching your uh, idea of that. Uh, you, you don't use the word um, field. What is the word? Spaces. You say spaces, mm. and, you know, like being in those spaces and like challenging yourself to going into these different spaces within that space it's just it's really fascinating 
And I mean, you ha- you also like add that like science part that is so like for me, it's just <laughs> like somewhere totally different place is also um, fun to talk about and to see that you're now actually going sort of back into mm-hmm. the be- beginning as well. And I have to say about aging, I have loved getting older. I have just loved it. <laughs> Well, and you know, I mean, if you look at research, actually, there's, I guess it's kind of a bell curve. And I think most people think, I mean, it's from an ageist kind of perspective, we think ages, you know, as we age, it's bad. But actually, for many people, as, as they get older, they're, as people in research, we call affect, they think their, their, their perception of themselves changes, and, and they feel happier. They, they feel more themselves. They, they don't care so much about whether people think anymore. And I mean, I'm, these are huge generalizations, of course. But, but speak loudly and clearly to me. I identify full on with all of what you're yeah. saying. There's also, I think there's a little, there's, but again, it's a bell curve. And I think there's things that can happen which can impact that. And I think it's important for us to think about them, that this isn't the fault of an individual, nor is it their shortcoming. I think it's a failure in our society, really, that we're, that we're letting people slide through the cracks. So we have this kind of peak, right? We know each other better. We know ourselves better. We, we're more confident. We're happier. But then some things happen. You know, either we acquire a disability or our bodies change or maybe um, we're, we, are, we, live, we have a certain socioeconomic racket that affects our freedom and our ability to be independent. Maybe we don't have a home um, or our home is precarious. Maybe um, we become less confident in our, in, our, in our bodies because of a fall and without lack of support to help us regain our confidence in our bodies, we recede. That in that means that maybe or maybe our, our closest friends pass away and we don't have this concept that community can be continued to be built or we don't have infrastructure that support that community. Right. So then then isolation and loneliness can happen. And we know that that affects our, our health very negatively. Right. Or maybe our our, our engagement in our minds and our brains changes and and you know, I, you know, the, the umbrella of, of dementia may happen, there's some cognitive changes may happen. And so our perceptions and interactions to others might change and, and others don't know how to respond to that. So again, we recede. So all of these things that we see as these pitfalls of aging are, in my opinion, shortcomings of our society. We've, we're letting people down. We, we don't, we're, we're not creating opportunities for community. We're not, we're not, engaging creatively in how we connect with one another and then thinking how we communicate and, and how we use language, both our bodies and our verbal language. We, we don't encourage spaces or, or connecting and, 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 and reaching out to individuals in their homes. We expect them to come to us and we don't necessarily always think about what would be the most efficient and effective way to bring people into those spaces or even to help them know that these spaces exist. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's a huge, and there's a lot of people who are doing great work in this, and I'm excited to see that this is growing. And I, and I don't think it just applies to aging. I think that there are I was many people. Ex- yeah, yep. this expands to many people. But I think there's a lot of opportunities there. 
I want to see them as opportunities. They're shortcomings, but they're opportunities for us to transform our narratives, our stories, the stories that we tell ourselves about how we can inhabit spaces together, how we are interconnected with one another, and create how creatively, you know, that I think that creative component is key. How can we try on different ways of being? How can we try on different ways of listening and interacting with one another? How can we build new stories together? And how can we do that in a way that honors our bodies? Right. So that's really what excites me about the work that I do because there's these, yeah, it's creative aging. Yeah, it's dance. Like, yes, this is a core of what I do. That's the practice. That's kind of the vehicle. But the implications of it, I think, for, for care, for how we define care, how we define health, how we think that our day-to-day social interactions impact health, all of those are, are the things that fall out of that, that trickle out of that if we, if we allow them to. And there's a huge potential there 